Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm coming slowly out of lockdown with my colleagues, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Murison. Bowie. Hello, Barney. In this episode, we're thrilled to welcome one of the pioneering pop journalists of the 60s and 70s, a man who wrote some of the earliest pieces on the Rolling Stones and Cream and Led Zeppelin and many more legends, and was a mainstay at Melody Maker until 1979. I'm talking, of course, about the legendary Chris Welch. Hello, Chris. Hi, Barney. Good to talk. (laughs) What a pleasure to have you with us today. Um, A little later, we'll be talking about Richard Thompson and Fairport Convention, as well as the best new articles on Rock's Back Pages. But let's start by asking you, Chris, how you came to write about pop music in the first place. Well, it's uh, a strange, long story, actually, because uh, I grew up in Stratford in the, in the East End, after, just after the war, and I used to read a lot of my dad's books. And one of them is a schoolboy book, a sort of pre-war account of a uh, public schoolboy, actually. Right. It's called The Fifth Form at St. Dominic's. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the first books I've read. And uh, the, what they did was they started a, a newspaper, their school. And I thought, what a great idea. So I copied that idea and did the same thing at my primary school. And uh, I actually had a newspaper called the 1P Times, which sounds like it costs a penny. But it was actually the name of the, the teacher, Mr. Pond. So that's okay. where I got into writing. Yeah. Wow. And I did that in the primary school for a year or so. It was just a sort of handwritten sheet pinned up on the wall. And when I went to my secondary school, um, I did the same thing, and I said, oh, can I run my own classroom newspaper? And I did that for five years, every week. It's, like, it's a bit like Private Eye on the wall. <laughs> Attacking school dinners. And, but of course, <laughs> saying how terrible they were. <laughs> this, is, this is pioneering investigative journalism. It? it was. It's finest, yeah. <laughs> Handwritten private eye. Occasionally people would scribble obscene graffiti on my work, and I got <laughs> I got the cane for having been responsible, which I didn't do it. It wasn't me. <laughs> and I also, and I wrote an article every year for the, uh, the school magazine. So uh, that's how I got into writing, learning about journalism. I even okay. bought a job, John Ball printing outfit. That's my, uh, I don't know if you remember those. You actually had a little rubber. The pair of tweezers. Oh, yes. You set tight, right? Oh, yes. I still got some. Ah. Well, <laughs> great so it was stuff. in your blood. It was in it was. your blood, clearly. Yeah, journalism. I wanted to be a journalist. Uh, when I left school, I went to uh, have a youth employment agency. They said, well, what do you want to do when you leave school? I said, well, I'd like to go to Fleet Street and be a reporter. And they laughed heartily. And... Uh, <laughs> And they gave me this leaflet. They said, uh, Mastic Asphalt Lathe Operative, which I discovered meant laying tarmac on the road. This is my job prospect. <laughs> this was their vision of your future. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, they, they thought I was just being ridiculous and that I'd never get to Fleet Street. But, and I complained oh, to my dad, right? and uh, he, uh, he applied for a job for me, actually. And looked in the small ads, and there was a vacancy in Fleet Street for an office boy. And uh, this is 1958 when I left school, I was 16. Okay. And uh, I left school at the Friday and I started work on the Monday. Because in those days, there was thousands of job opportunities, and Fleet Street was an incredibly exciting place. And I got this job on Scotsman. And of course, I loved music. I was a big jazz fan, rock and roll, of course. 
And one of the first pieces, so I actually had the chance to write for the Scotsman as well, as fetch the tea. And I did a review of Louis Armstrong playing a concert in London. Oh my um, God. So that was your first music piece? First piece in a newspaper. Uh, yeah, first music piece. Why don't we have it on Rock's Back Pages? Oh, well, I can find it, yeah. I can find <laughs> if you can find it. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. No, I'd love out, that. I cut out the pattern. Put it in my scrap. Good. Good. But I often used to wonder what they thought in Edinburgh and Scotland about the 16-year-old pontificating about Louis Armstrong. So, <laughs> if I knew what I was talking about. You know. <laughs> but no byline. Didn't get a byline. Oh. But I was at the, in Fleet Street for three years, and it was a fantastic experience as a teenager, visiting all the national newspapers like the Daily Mail and the Observer and the Sunday Times and the Times. You had to go and collect and deliver coffee and photographs and general job Proper body. apprenticeship, really. Proper apprenticeship. Yes. And, of course, you learnt about deadlines and emergencies. And uh, I was given all these photographs of Princess Margaret's wedding by our chief photographer to deliver to the all the nationals and we wanted to sell them as a kind of a freelance job. And I went in a cafe and had a bun and a cup of tea. Because <laughs> so I've been working for hours and uh, I left it so late, it was just too late, missed the deadline and I was absolutely furious. So I had this parcel, Princess Margaret's wedding, failed to get them delivered. So that was the black mark against me for a while. And you never missed the deadline again, I'll bet. No, no, I realised then. <laughs> that's what you're supposed to do. But it was a great experience. And, of course, I'd learned to type at school, so I could type. And, uh, and I knew how newspapers worked. And uh, I wanted to be a reporter still. By the way, I operated the switchboard occasionally at the, uh, at the Scotsman, which had an office in Fleet Street. So. Yeah. And uh, I'd sit there one day, and I was in total panic. There were dozens of people ringing, and... And this man was shouting at me and he said, I want to speak to the editor. Oh, who is it? And he said, Boothby, Lord Boothby. Scarlet, <laughs> <laughs> the scurrilous Lord yeah. Boothby. He's ringing from the House of Commons. He wants an apology for something. Get me Boothby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, the switchboard was in total chaos because I shouldn't have been operating it. <laughs> wind up things, you put plugs in and then Oh I briefly God. had a holiday job, and which involved before answering machines came in, I was effectively the answering machine, <laughs> a, 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 ah, big PB, yeah. a big PBX thing with with plugs, and I just completely. Free, I got a bit. I got a bit too high on some weed before going in one day, <laughs> and, and, and completely lost the plot, and I've got a severe dressing down the next day from my boss because apparently people have been ringing to complain that that I hadn't put them through or taken the messages. So yeah, I can I can I can understand where you were at with this flickering light. That's my experience exactly. <laughs> wow. Okay, because the switchboard girl went to lunch, you see, and she said mm-hmm. you take over. So I did. <laughs> but the funny thing was, we all did it. There were about six of us obvious boys, and we're all like mods actually. We we're all going yeah. to the flamingo and the Lyceum ballroom at lunchtime. What the? <laughs> we also played a lot of pranks. And one of the things we did was to stick the PBX plug into your mouth on your tongue mm. you get an electric shock so I wouldn't recommend that to <laughs> <laughs> I didn't try I didn't try that one Chris I no, 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 no. Look, you talk about the flamingo and stuff Chris so mm. I mean so in parallel with this journalistic apprenticeship you were 
heavily into music already. I mean, were you already a drummer at that point? Yes, I had. Yeah. Well, the first band I saw playing, actually, was Lonnie Donegan and Skipper Group with Chris Wilder's jazz band when I was at oh. school. And they were so exciting. We saw the, the town hall version. And uh, hearing Donegan singing Rock Island and I was just wonderful. Because we'd never heard the blues before, live or Skipper, or jazz much. It was the first concert I ever saw. And, uh, I was inspired to go out and buy uh, a washboard. So, and we formed a Skipper Group. So I played in a Skipper Group. Our colleague, Martin Collier, who's, who's not with us today, but is a fellow director, his dad was Bill Collier, who was the washboard player in Ken Collier's band, his, his uncle Ken's band, which is what Lonnie Zongan came and Chris Barber came out of. So, that's yes. right, yes, amazing coincidence. <laughs> Chris Barber just passed away, didn't he? Yes, that's exactly. Right. We yes. did talk yeah. about him a bit the other yeah. day on the, on the podcast when Martin was actually... Was Martin with us that day? Yeah, he was, yeah. Chris, let's jump forward to the first, the earliest piece we have of yours on Rock's Back Pages, which is a piece you wrote in January 64, Rolling Stones piece, for the Bexley Heath and Welling Observer. Mm -hmm. The headline is, Pop Weirdies Set Out to Play It Grim, which is one of my (laughs) favourite headlines on Rock's Back Pages. There he has it. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) For listeners, Chris is showing us this on Zenka. Well, so that must have been one of the earliest pieces you wrote about kind of, you know, R&B bands of that period. It's a wonderful piece. Mm. I'll bri- briefly quote from it. You really get to the sort of point of the Stones, which is today, weird means different. The Stones' great quality is their ability to scowl nicely at the audience instead of smiling. Instead of beaming the regulation doses of goodwill and affection from the stage, they glower from beneath fighting mops of hair. So they would, <laughs> and this great quote. Apparently, you'd been, you'd seen them at Greenwich Town Hall. I don't know if that was late '63. Yeah, someone shouted been, yeah. at Mick, uh, "Get your hair cut!" and 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 he said, he's "Classic Jagger, what?" and look like you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the swinging '60s starts there, doesn't it? It does. Yes, it's wonderful. Yeah, actually, I've, uh, I've forgotten I'd seen them at Greenwich Town Hall. Yeah, that was before I saw them, and. Uh, also saw them at the Jazz Festival, 1962 Jazz Festival, Richmond Jazz Festival in the 10th. Yes, so. I remember talking to you about that. And so, I mean, hmm. what was, were you, you were there and you were in a position to, to write about this stuff. I guess not many people were covering hmm. groups like the Stones at that point. And it, it must have been just very fresh and exciting and, and new. And you kind of, not you didn't have the field to yourself, but you were one of the first, you know, the first sort of name pop journalists. Well, it's nice to uh, to know that. It's quite a shock. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Martin. Yes. Well, it's never was... too late to find these things out, Chris. No, no. Well, it's almost by default in a kind of funny kind of way because I did get a job uh, eventually on a local paper. I used to say I worked for the Times and the Observer. Betsy Heath Times and Welling Observer. <laughs> excellent, excellent. And as a drummer and a jazz and rock fan, of course, I took an interest in all the local bands. And quite a few sounds incorporated were a local mm-hmm. band. And I interviewed them. It made a change from writing obituaries and wedding reports or going to the local court. And there was actually a big beat group scene in South East London. Yeah, there was uh, Burn Elliott and the Fen Men, they were a local group. And of course, Pretty Things came from Dark. Yeah. And the Rolling Stones created such a fantastic impression of Come On. 
Everything was wrong since me and my baby parted. All day long I'm walking cause I couldn't get my car started. Later from a job and I can't afford to check it. I wish somebody come along and run into it and wreck it. Come on, since me and my baby parted. Come on. There was a pub next to our office, which was very convenient, and they had a jukebox. And that's where we heard Beatles' first record, Love and Do, on the jukebox, and the Stones. So, because you didn't really hear them that much on the radio. Not that oh, I had right. a chance to listen to the radio getting up reporting. So, yes, and uh, I love writing about the local music scene. So, uh, and I was very lucky that the editor, or the uh, sub-editors, let me do it. You know, they said, okay, write about the Stones. I also wrote about Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry, but I didn't get to interview them. <laughs> Fantastic. It'd be great to get those pieces. But I mean, so you joined Melody Maker in 1964. Did, did you just see an ad for a reporter or how did you get to, to work on the MM? Well, I'd been on the local paper for about four years and it was a great experience. I loved doing it and learned an awful lot. But people kept saying to me, well, you're writing about the Stones and crazy things and uh, why don't you get a job on a music paper? And I thought, yes, good idea, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, was, I used to buy all the music papers anyway. I was a fan. And, uh, funny enough, I wrote to the NME, first of all. Did uh, you? And they didn't have a job. They didn't have a vacancy. And then I wrote to Melody Maker. By a miracle, my predecessor, his name was Chris, another Chris, he was leaving. He'd, uh, he got fed up with the job, some problem he had with the, with the staff. They were very cynical on Melody Maker. They were old school journalists, and uh, yeah. he was very upset about something, uh, the way they treated him. Anyway, and that's another story, but there was a vacancy. So uh, I wrote to uh, Ray Coleman, the editor, and he said, Ah, the letter writer. And he wrote back to me. <laughs> and of course, I used to write letters to the MM. I actually won an LP. They had this, this thing, Mailbag, it was the, the regular yeah, column. Yeah. So they recognised me as a writer. And, uh, I went up to the office and met Jack Hutton and Ray Coleman. And they said, right, okay, well, we'll give you a, a test. Um, Dave Brubeck Quartet's in London. And Joe Morello, the drama, is available for an interview on Sunday at the High Park Hotel. Can you go along and interview him? Well, he happens to be one of my heroes. He's a fantastic drummer. I wish that I could play that, that left hand that he had. You know, it's incredible technique. So I did. I went on Sunday night, met him. First time I'd done an interview with a major star, as he was. I was quite nervous about it. And uh, he was great. He was very helpful. talked very intelligently about drumming. Because the editor says, nobody knows what to ask drummers. So you do it. You're a drummer. And Joe Morello said, you don't have to be an idiot to play the drums, you know. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I used that as my intro, yeah. (laughs) Great quote. <laughs> and amazingly, the Melody Maker ran the piece with that headline, which I've still got a copy of it somewhere. It was just amazing to see, uh, oh, my God, my name's in, uh, up in lights in, in the MM, which I've been reading since I was a teenager. And then I got a telegram saying, uh, okay, you've got the job. And, uh, come start work on Monday. Well, of course, first of all, I had to resign from the Kentish Times, and I had a farewell drink. 
So uh, it's rather a shame, really, because I was indentured. It's like an apprenticeship, and I had to see the editor in chief, and you allow them to leave. And then I got my dream job at Melinda May. Oh. About 22 or 23, I think I was. Yeah, about. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was in uh, October 1964. Okay, okay. Given that the next piece we're featuring on the homepage is an interview you did with Jimi Hendrix in sort of early spring of 67, I'm interested to know whether there was, at Melody Maker, there was any sort of resistance to writing about what was happening, all these extraordinary new acts that had nothing to do with, you know, the, the old school sort of melody maker journalism. I mean, you were the, you were the young gun and was, was there a sort of any suspicions like, why are we writing about these people? Well, I'm glad to say it wasn't. No, they were really Good. quite, that was my main job was as a younger writer to cover all these bands. I mean, what a job, eh? Go out, get drunk and listen to rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. They Sounds don't make right. them like that anymore. No, no. <laughs> I mean, you wrote this lovely piece for us, actually, in 2009, just reminiscing very amusingly about backstage life in the 60s. And you talk about the Astoria in Finsbury Park and so sort of wandering around just looking for people to interview. And, and in one night, you, you're in Jimi Hendrix's dressing room and they're all in their underpants, giggling like schoolgirls, you say. And then you go out with Engelbert Humperdinck, who's on the same tour, to have egg and chips and tea to talk to him about. And you suggest maybe you should set your guitar on fire. Not that he had a guitar. <laughs> but it does sound like great laugh. It's a more was. innocent times, shall we say. Well, that's an extraordinary thing. I mean, I don't remember having to have a laminate or anybody's permission to actually enter the, uh, what was the Rainbow Theatre. It's actually the Astoria then. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And I just went along there and walked in and uh, went backstage. And maybe I got an invitation from Chaz Charlie, Jimi Hendrix's manager. But it was incredible, really. I still think of it now. Just wandering around backstage at the store in the afternoon. And I remember standing next to Scott Walker on the stage and uh, this man was shouting at him, talking at him. And Scott said, that's my manager. Offensive, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Very loudly, right in, in his, within his hearings. Well, so you and Keith Altham, obviously, you know, you've both been on RBP for a long time. And mm. I think you mentioned Keith in that piece. But so, you know, you you... Both of you were among the earliest journalists um, here in the UK to interview Hendrix. I mean, I, I'll probably hand this segment of the show over to Mark um, <laughs> because it's a, it's a lovely piece about going to that flat he had. Was it on Green Street or somewhere in Mayfair, wasn't it? Yes, it was, uh, you know, just looking at the piece now, it's near Marble Arch. That's what mm. I remember. It's close mm. to Marble Arch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Mark, you probably loaded this, but the title headline is "Who says Jimi Hendrix can't sing?" Brackets, he does. <laughs> <laughs> Very well, good. I was anticipating a great upset outcry from Hendrix fans if I said that that he can't sing. I in my own words, but he actually did say that to me. He was uh, he was convinced he wasn't a great singer. He said, uh, "I'm just an entertainer and a performer," but of course, he was a great singer actually. Yes. Fine singer, I thought. You, you must have come across Nancy Lewis as track records press yes, officer yeah. at the time. She died, unfortunately, a few months back, actually. But I took tea with her and she described Jimmy as being a doll. He's just a complete doll, mm. which I really loved. You know, she just adored mm. him. That's true. Yes, he was so friendly and funny and uh, yeah. outgoing. 
and witty as well. And uh, when I saw him, he was so self-effacing. All right, he didn't want to talk about his new album. He wanted to talk about Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club yeah. Band, which I think right. just came up. And he yeah. had this record player that's covered in dust, and the old people underlying the no sleeve. And, uh, you know, like a typical student's flat. <laughs> but he wanted to talk about Sergeant Pepper. Yeah. And I had to sort of gear into At the Savile Theatre, he famously played that particular song the from title the album. track, didn't he? Yeah, I think yeah. it was a week after the album was released or something like that. And all half the Beatles were in the audience as well. It's just fabulous stuff. Hey, it was 20 a big family the music business it's yeah. quite incredible everybody went to the same clubs and met in pubs and didn't have to permission from record companies to actually talk to each other <laughs> signed in triplicate i mean chris when when you're in your 20s life goes by a bit more slowly than it does when you're when you're older so from this vantage point everything was happening so quickly you know you get from you know the rocking berries to you know jimmy hendrix in what seems to us now like a kind of heartbeat i mean but were were you at the time kind of i mean was it did you have the sense that things were happening very quickly that music was changing very fast it was getting louder and heavier and more obviously more psychedelic and experimental or did it seem at the time like it was unfolding at quite an organic pace well music was uh, progressing and changing so rapidly it was very difficult to keep up with it. It wasn't right. just new bands and new artists. There were whole new genres of music coming on. I mean, we talked about Skiffle earlier, and that's, took, that was there for a couple of years or so. But when I was at Melody Maker, we were coping with, uh, ah, some of the Motown. You heard that? Yes. It's incredible. Mm. Or the Stack sound. Or, you know, moving on from rhythm and blues. And then there was progressive rock coming in well, within like a week or so. Well, we should we better talk about progressive rock, hadn't we, Chris? <laughs> yeah. Because you, you are very identified with progressive rock. And a little bird whispered on me that you may even have coined that phrase. Tell us more. Well, of course, I was a fan of progressive jazz, which you took me back right. to the days of Jerry Mulligan and Dave Brubeck. And uh, when we started hearing bands that wanted to experiment and move on from just playing a 12-bar blues, bands like the Yardbirds, actually, Jeff Beck, yeah, yeah, experimenting, Indeed. coming up with new ideas and new sounds, and they're all in the studio trying to get better effects and write something that wasn't just a basic rip off of 1950s rock and roll and blues and R and B, uh, and so that's why I called it progressive rock. You know, they were trying to progress, and bands like I really liked. Well, really, I suppose it started with Cream, you could say, and then Jimi Hendrix's experience. They epitomised that. And in quick pop pursuit of them, once, of course, they broke up. Their, their careers only lasted about two years, two or three years. Sure. In their wake came this whole new movement of bands like Yes and Emerson Lake and Palm and Jethro Tull. And that was all built on what had gone before, with the Beatles as well, actually. They were pretty progressive, too. If you think about it. Of course. And everybody wanted to come up with something new and interesting, like a big competition going so that's why I use that phrase. I always liked particularly bands that had great musicians in them. 
that's why I love cream. And uh, I actually wrote a piece in Melody Maker suggesting wouldn't it be great if all the, the best bass player, the best guitar player, the best keyboard player and singer got together? Because there was always a, a band with about one person that was any good. <laughs> and the rest yeah. of them weren't so hot. Someone who was a passenger. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. that's right. So that's where the yeah. super group came. Can I briefly yeah. mention that I went to see Crane's first uh, rehearsal? No, really? Wow. Yeah. Ginger Baker rang me in the office one day. He said, oh, I've left uh, Graham Bond. Jack Bruce has left Manfred Mann. And Eric's uh, left the Yardbirds. No, he'd already left the Yardbirds, I think. He's yeah. leaving John, John Mayo. Mayo, yeah, Mayo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he told me about this band that's going to be called, what's it called? Crane. So I wrote a story which actually got lost as a news story on page three, I think. And Ginger thought it was going to be on the front page. He was pretty upset about that. <laughs> anyway, it caused a huge round, Jack Bruce's affairs. That's one of the first of many rounds in Croon between Jack and Ginger. Because uh, they hadn't told their managers or the bands that they were leaving to form this new career. So I then got calls from all the managers saying, this is all rubbish, total lies, so there is no band called Croon. And then uh, Robert Stickle said, yes, there is. He found me and told me it's all true. And, uh, <laughs> so I didn't have to apologise. Stickle bailed you out. <laughs> he did, yeah. And he said, well, well come, come along and hear me play, uh, just to prove that uh, this wasn't a phantom to my imagination, this new supergroup. So I went to uh, Church Hall in North London, and there was Jack, Ginger and Eric. They had a tiny drum kit, one amplifier, and it was the bloke with the brooms sweeping the floor. The clouds of dust, and a group, <laughs> and a group of brownies practicing in the corner. It's like a church hall. Really. <laughs> well, no, I was just, oh, the glamour of rock and roll. <laughs> they started to play, and Jack stopped and shouted at Eric, "You messed that up! You mucked that up!" So already they were arguing, and uh, Robert Stewart came over and whispered in my ear. He said, "Are they any good?" I thought, if I say no, they're a lot of rubbish. <laughs> He might not have signed them. <laughs> but Mercer said, no, no, they're great. Don't worry. They'll, they'll be good. It's, it's interesting you're talking about the arguments because the miracle of that band starting at all was that Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker had been fighting on stage way back when they were but together in the Graham Bond band. With Graham Bond. Yeah, so the fact they went and started this group together in the first place is just extraordinary because by all counts they just intensely disliked each other. Mm. Well, that's true in a way. Ginger Baker came out of the womb fighting, didn't he? <laughs> I mean, Ginger Baker just is... <laughs> he could be very great. He was always nice to me. We always, had, we always got on well because I wrote about him. Who could not be nice to you, Chris? You were one, oh. one of nature's gentlemen. I can't imagine anyone being nasty to you, but Ginger Baker was probably nasty to just about everybody else you ever <laughs> encountered. <laughs> It got worse as time went by. But so, no, the thing was that Ginger and Eric wanted to form the group, or Eric wanted to form the band. And they said, I want Jack Bruce in it. And Ginger said, oh, no, I don't want Jack Bruce in it. But eventually they, they agreed to make up, and that's how it came together. Okay. But after this rehearsal, just briefly to wind this story up, after I told them, Robert Stickwood, it's okay, you can sign them. And they, <laughs> I said, would you blessing. Like... <laughs> <laughs> After one of this, I said, no, that's terrible. What would have happened? But uh, we all went off in the van to have uh, egg and chips, rather like the egg and chips I have with Engelbert Hamilton <laughs> in the transport cafe. And Jack was driving the van, and we all had to pile in. It's one of those terrible old 
Bedford fans in the bench seat. And we all three sat in the front row, in the front seat. And I think Jack had been smoking a joint. And we went through a red light and just missed a car coming in the room. So we would have been totaled. We would have been wiped out. Oh, my. That could have been the beginning and the end of the cream story yeah, right there. Yeah. And N- nobody said anything except Ginger gave Jack the most ferocious look I've ever seen. Just glared at him. Nobody said anything. <laughs> I suppose there was a lot of glaring in cream, mm. wasn't there? A lot of glaring. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, talking of drummers, I thought we'd throw in the name Billy Cobham here just because I got a, a press release email earlier in the week about a live coaching Zoom masterclass series hosted by Billy Cobham, which begins on April the 25th. I think there are 30 participants it's limited to, so I don't know whether it's filled up yet, but it's basically it's Billy Cobham's Guide to Stress-Free Drumming. Um, <laughs> and they were discuss, They're going to discuss playing in odd times, four-way coordination, rudiments, mm-hmm. dynamics, phrasing, and more. All for the knockdown price of $199 for each three-hour workshop. Oh, my God. So I thought, <laughs> I'll look up, look up and see how much Chris wrote on, on Billy and Mahavishnu. Of course, you did write quite a lot. And we were talking about prog. Mahavishnu sort of straddled the sort of boundaries, really, between kind of prog and jazz fusion, didn't they? They did. And, yeah. I found this interview that Mark had added from 1968. He interviewed Billy when he's playing at Ronnie Scott's with Horace Silver. I mean, as a drummer, how do you remember Cobham, both with Horace Silver and then with Mahavishnu? Well, I was lucky to see Billy playing at Ronnie Scott's with Horace Silver because that was pretty much a straight-ahead swing jazz group, modern jazz group. It wasn't playing progressive rock at all. No. <laughs> I was immediately impressed by Billy's drumming. Everybody was. He was only 24. And I asked if I could do an interview with him. I mean, he had a fantastic technique, tremendous speed and taste. But the funny thing was, I mentioned about asking about his favourite drummers. When we did the interview in the club, actually, sitting uh, in, the, uh, in the lobby, and we said, oh, I don't get on with Buddy Rich, but at least he, he doesn't get on with me either. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, at least I can read music, which he can't. So I thought that yes. was nice. <laughs> yes, nice little dig there. Yeah. Well, Buddy was very competitive. I love Buddy Rich, and I'd interviewed him too, but... It was terribly competitive. I love the way that he talks about Tony Oxley as being one of his favourite drummers. This is not what you'd imagine, given the, the area of jazz that Oxley was working in. But then you also mentioned the piece that he himself had been working with some of the free players in New York. So it does yes, make certain sense. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it really is. Tony Oxley's a fabulous drummer. He'd, he'd had played with Toby Hayes as well, I think. Yeah. Tony Oxley, yeah. Yeah, he was an upcoming drummer. I met him a couple of times and saw him playing too. Yeah. And a powerful personality, as I recall. I think he was quite... <laughs> Another powerful personality yes. for a drummer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You've had to interview quite a lot of them. Yes, you? I have. Yes. I'm used to powerful personality. <laughs> <laughs> no, outspoken, I think, was Outspoken. I mean, Chris, given that you interviewed Cobham then, and obviously were more than au fait with like jazz drummers, were you in any way sort of surprised by Mahavishnu when you first heard them or first saw them when they first came to the UK? What was your take on Mahavishnu? And 
do you think Mahavishnu those records sort of stand up? I mean, what do we what what do we all feel about Mahavishnu now? So, so I mean, Chris, what what was your take on them? The in the mountain flame. Well, it was a constant sensation. Actually, people hadn't heard music play with such incredible energy and speed, and uh, <clears throat> it was taking uh, what I call progressive rock to a whole new level. And uh, I did go and see them, and I interviewed Billy again, actually. And uh, in later years, he told me how difficult it was playing with Mahavishnu Orchestra because John McLaughlin wanted everything at rapid tempo. It was very <coughs> physically exhausting. I assumed that Billy could cope with all that because he's quite a fit guy. <laughs> but even he had uh, problems. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, and I remember going to Trident Studios and when they were recording, I think I went to one of their recording sessions. But they did cause a huge sensation. Okay. And inspired lots of young British musicians to try and get into that. And nobody could play the Mahavishnu Orchestra. But it was a kind of fleeting thing in a way you couldn't sustain that kind of attack and that whole style of playing i don't think it lasted more than a few years really progressive rock jazz jazz rock whatever you call it just but i mean are you okay with the mahavishnu corpus of work i mean are you what do you think i mean not i just don't know enough of it really i mean it's some of it it can be exciting, but some of it can just be a bit sort of meandering and wandering and not really come to a point, which is something I think can be a problem with progressive, quote unquote, mm. forms of music where it just, I don't know, there can be a little bit almost too much good playing in, in some funny sort of way without a focus on the the kind of meat of what's actually being said. Mm. But specifically the Mahavishnu Orchestra, I just don't know enough, to be honest, to have an informed mm. judgment on it. Oh, it's a musician's band, really. Yes, it's a band for drummers. And Mark, well, how do you feel about I absolutely adored them when they first appeared. I'd, I'd, due to an encounter with the Metropolitan Police, I'd been packed off to boarding <laughs> school. And um, that was that was the, sort of the winter of 72, 73, which is when they first sort of really emerged. And They were on a couple of BBC Two jazz programmes, which I've forgotten the nine, names of the programmes, but they were on TV. And we were all absolutely kind of bowled over them. I raced out and bought an amounting flame, raced out and bought birds of fire. And then at some point, I suddenly started really hating it. It was like a, a switch went. And it was like, this is re- massively overindulgent and, and wibbly and fiddly. Stopped listening to them completely. Saw the Mark II of the Mavishan Orchestra at Nebworth in 74. I fell asleep during this set and woke up to hear McLaughlin's guitar being panned from one side of the, the PA to the other. Went back to sleep again. Um, <laughs> now I've sort of revisited some of that stuff now. And in the Mounting Flame, bits of it really do stand up actually much better than I thought, I thought they would. You Know You Know is a phenomenal track, isn't it? I mean, when they played a bit slower sometimes, I thought they yeah. were really great. But sometimes the speed and virtuosity, for its own sake, is a little bit kind of a turn-off, I yeah. think. Their, their breakup was venomous, because it was basically... They, I, I don't know if it's the Trident sessions you went to, Chris, but they were recording what was going to be their third album at Trident, which has subsequently, very recently, come out. And it all fell to pieces. That Rick Laird, particularly, was hated the fact that John McLaughlin was constantly sort of proselytising Street Chinmoy stuff and, and, and appearing to be superior mm. to everyone else because he was spiritually... In a higher plane, really pissed off people like Rick Laird, mm. Billy Cobham too. Striking more. Mm. Oh, <laughs> it's oh, Billy Cobham <laughs> asking if he wants to be part of his drum workshop. Hi, <laughs> John. <laughs> um, it's not John McLaughlin. 
that would be. Oh, can we pretend? Can we just pretend it is? That's very funny. That's a friend of mine as a guitar player, and he went to see John McLaughlin recently. No, and he agreed with Mark. He thought he was terribly self-indulgent. Can we just do it again and have him pretend to be John McLaughlin? <laughs> yeah. I do think that the self-indulgent thing it can be an issue with with musicians' bands, as you termed them earlier, Chris. Mm. You know, I play jazz, and you do meet musicians who are like who don't any longer care about what it might sound like to their listenership and i think for me that misses a kind of fundamental element of particularly jazz or any kind of improvised music which is the kind of interplay between audience and performer and that relationship and if it's all about showing off basically then you kind of lose some of the vitality of what it should be about for me anyway yeah there's a marvellous quote from Miles Davis, actually, because, uh, you know, he got into the rock as well. But uh, John Coltrane was saying to Miles, oh, I don't know when to stop playing. I just have to keep playing nonstop. And Miles said, why don't you take the saxophone out of your mouth? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was great. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that's just, absolutely brilliant. Just, just stop playing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The great sage speech. <laughs> Chris, this one we did, I mean, I, I thought we could sort of segue via another drummer, a very different drummer, because we're going to talk a bit about Richard Thompson and Fairport Convention, and I looked up what, if anything, you'd written about the Fairports, and you wrote this actually very touching piece after... Fairport's drummer Martin Lamble was killed in this awful Basel coach crash in the spring of 1969. So, I mean, that has been talked about a lot in terms of the Fairports. Was it two people were killed and Mm -hmm. the whole band was quite badly injured? It was a very traumatic and difficult thing. Yeah. But Richard Thompson is publishing his autobiography this week, or maybe it's the first part of an autobiography, because I think it only goes up to 1975, called Bee's Wing. So I thought it'd be a, a, an opportunity to talk about, about Fairport and the part they played in kind of folk rock, electric folk. Mm. Well, what's your memory of sort of folk going electric in the 60s? if you have a memory of that time, Chris? Well, it was very welcome, actually. I did used to go to folk clubs as well occasionally, and the idea of the floor singer appealed to me, and that was always great fun. But when we saw bands like Fairport Convention, it was great that they were kind of revitalising the folk scene. Melody Maker did come. We had specialist writers like Carl Ballas and Colin Owen writing about folk. And, uh, of course, it was a bit uh, tucked away on the back pages, and it needed a band like Fairport Convention to revitalise the British scene. And uh, that's what they did. I mean, they did start as a more traditional group. And then later they emphasised the, you know, the drama. Martin Lambert was great, a wonderful young drummer. And I did see them a few times. I met him at the Speakeasy, actually. And he used to wear an alarm clock around his neck. Yes, of a wristwatch, which we all thought like was like Flavor Flav from Public Enemy, but yeah. a lot of Flavor Flav, <laughs> which we thought was quite fun and uh, charming, really. And he was a really nice guy, and I used to talk to him about drums and in the speak over a drink or two. And, and I loved the band; I thought they were great. They were Lion Records, of course, weren't they? the first albums. And it was a terrible shock when we heard the news about about his death. And of course, we liked Sandy Denny, their later son, the next singer. 
I mean, she was in the she was on that bus as well mm. with Richard Thompson, Ashley Hutchings, Simon Nichol. Have I forgotten mm. anyone else? I mean, it's a wonder they weren't all killed. Really. Well, it's in in the audio, which we're going to talk about, I guess, in a second. Uh, Simon Nichol talks about how he was the one member of the band not thrown from the van. Yeah, that I forget who was driving, but it was one of the band. He uh-huh. ended up ninety yards away from the van. Oh, I mean, it was, their, it was their road manager, I believe, because their road manager had said, can you drive, Simon, because I'm that's feeling right. a bit yes. ill. Yes, and Simon right. said, I'm not feeling very well either, yeah. so I'm going to yeah. sleep in the back. So he was he, he he was the only member of the band unscathed because he stayed in the van. Everyone else flew out. Mm. It was absolutely extraordinary. Gosh, yeah. What was it on the M1? Was it? I forget. Yeah, I think it, yeah. I think it was. Fatal. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yes, it's a terrible shock. But mind you, there were lots of terrible accidents because motorway driving was in its infancy. The roads are ter- not well organised and the vehicles weren't very good either. And the musicians were all tired from gigging, returning from late gigs. So it had quite a lot, actually, bands crashing. Chris, you mentioned Carl Dallas, and one of the pieces we're featuring in, in the free on RBP section is a piece that Carl wrote, not actually for Melody May, but for The Times mm-hmm. in April 1970 about electric folk. And he talks about how important Sandy Denny's joining, when well, we'll hear about that in a minute from, from Simon Nichol, but how important they were. And the Legion Leaf album, how incredibly important that was. Mm. Uh, actually promised me to mention, I know that Omnibus are reissuing that great book, The Electric Muse, in a kind of slightly updated version mm. next month, which Carl Dallas was one of the authors of. I mean, I was never that kind of, sort of into folk rock at the time, and I've really come to love like Legion Lee from those early Fairport records and to recognize how brilliant Richard Thompson was. I mean, maybe just talk briefly about Thompson and his solo career and the, and the albums he made with his wife, Linda. I want to see the bright lights tonight. I mean, how, how great is that? One of the great Island albums from that time. And did you follow sort of Thompson's path post Fairport through the seventies? Well, I have to confess. No, I didn't really. I didn't really follow that. His career. I don't know why, but maybe I was too involved with other things. But, uh, yes. Prog. No. Prog. Too, too busy with ELP. <laughs> yes. And yes. No. Yeah. No, I, and yes. I must and be Led honest. No, I and Led Zeppelin. Yep. Yeah, I guess. Yep. I mean, when I think back that period, there was so much going on. It's hard to keep up with what Led Zeppelin was doing the following year. You know, it's just, uh, but no, I didn't. Re- because, as I say, we had specialist writers like Colin Irwin and Tony yes. Wilson and Carl Bowers. So yes. I didn't really write a lot about folk art, I have to confess. But I did love Fairfield Convention. We've got a great piece by Bob Woffenden, actually, from NME from 74, when I Want to See the Bright Lights is either just out or about to come out. And Richard talks about why he left. So I'll just read a quick quote, and then maybe we'll talk about the audio. So Thompson says, I left Fairport as a reaction against being in the band too long. The music I was playing was stunted. I wasn't thinking for myself. I was too aware of what the others were doing. And about that time, I forgot how to write songs as well. I was only writing songs that other people could sing or like. There wasn't anything real there. You know, Thompson has, you know, went on to be come one of the sort of, you know, one of the great singer-songwriters in many ways. And certainly, I think Mark and I would agree, one of the 
great and sort of most underrated guitar players, mm. an extraordinary guitar player, really. But but people don't think of him in, in the sort of context of Clapton and Co. because it's a bit more subtle than that. I mean, Mark, you're a guitar player. Tell us about Richard's playing. First of all, I mean, if you listen to the early Fairport stuff, I mean, the, the, it, it took Sandy Denny to turn them into a real folk band. They were as much a rock, yeah. rock band as they were a folk band. Sure. You know, it is. And his playing is marvellously aggressive. He developed really fabulous chops. My one quibble is, as he got older as, in his solo career, I didn't like the sound he got. He basically had that sort of between pickups, Mark Knopfler-esque sort of sound, which I just loathe. And it's a shame because he's playing beautiful stuff but it's just compromised by the noise he's making, which is a real shame. But he is a mar- he's a marvellous player, very interesting songwriter. I mean, Barney, do we, should we go straight into the audio interview? Why not? I think perfect cue, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, because um, it, it's Simon Nickel being interviewed by John Tobler in 1991, and it's basically an entire history of the Fairport from Simon Nickel's point of view, clearly. from As a schoolboy first meeting Ashley Hutchings, Basically, kind of a band evolving, naming the band because I think it was Richard Thompson's parents had a house called Fairport up in sort of North London. No, um, no, it was that was Simon Nichols. That was Simon Nichols, actually. It was the Nichol family home, yeah. yeah. Which is where they rehearsed because it was the one place where they could, could make a noise. Judy Dibble joining the band, Joe Boyd signing them to Witch Season Productions, and then via that, first of all, I, f- I forget the first label, eventually to Island Records. People were always coming and going. Ian Matthews joined for a while, went. And let's listen to this clip. This is about Sandy Denny auditioning for them. It's really interesting stuff. We auditioned for three days, and somehow or other, Sandy was one of the girls who turned up. Thank heaven she did. Because, I mean, she floated like a bubble to the top of the cream. Mm-hmm. She was the only one that really would have fitted anyway. Well, once she'd done her bit, there was no question. Yeah. All the other sort of scores immediately fell to zero before her. <laughs> and we stopped looking, yeah. And it was great because what she brought was not just... Um, her voice and her musicianship and her personality, but she brought her background. She brought um, the knowledge that she'd acquired in the traditional and, and traditionally based scene from people like Alex Campbell and, and all her friends, which we would not otherwise have had immediate access to as performers, although particularly Ashley and to a lesser extent myself and Richard had been exposed to those kinds of those elements of music prior to that point. very interesting precise to that point was, was that in a way it was her joining the band which really tilted them firmly into a sort of electro-traditionalist camp you know Cecil Sharp House and all of that sort of stuff goes on to talk there's an extensive bit about what we've just been talking about Martin Lamble's death which is fascinating Dave Maddox another a great drummer replacing Martin Lamble unhalf bricking Lesion Leaf uh, Swarbrick getting involved Sandy Denny leaving, Ashley Hutchins leaving, Dave Pegg joining, and then them all having to become singers after Sandy Denny left. Basically, the men in the band had to kind of up their singing game, including Thompson. And let's have a listen to this about Richard Thompson leaving. Just before we get into this, is that he talks about 
Thompson's Sufism. Richard Thompson became a Sufi Muslim whilst in, in the band. Uh, he ends and up Linda, actually, and Linda oh, as well. And Linda, yeah. yeah. And uh, she ends up in a commune where my old friend Martin Stone from Chili William Red Hot Peppers was also a Sufi at that time. And so oh, it was is a, that the same a, commune? Was yeah, it was the same commune. So it's a commune for the dynamite guitar players, <laughs> all learning how to cook really good curries. <laughs> so let's listen to this clip. It's really interesting. <laughs> You know, he wasn't happy with it. It was, it was becoming too routine. He wanted to stretch himself as a writer, and he just didn't have the time. I mean, that's my reading of it. We were all living together in one house, um, so there wasn't really a tremendous amount of personal conflict. We'd have all been aware of that if there'd been, you know, crockery flying around the kitchen. We'd have noticed, but it was, it was okay. He just retreated to his bedroom and stopped coming to gigs. <laughs> And we'd go out and we'd do the gigs as a foursome and come back and he'd have written four and a half songs while we'd been out. I want to see the bright lights tonight. Meet me at the station, don't be late. It's fascinating. Right. Talks also about his success. Uh, they shared, they basically had a sort of communal living arrangements for a long time, that band. And at one point, a lorry crashed into the house they were staying in, right into David Swarbrick's room. Mm. And um, apparently there were bricks everywhere, except for Swarbrick himself and his bed were untouched. So he makes a, quite a good joke about Swarbrick and bricks. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and then there's just an endless series of comings and goings. He leaves the band, he rejoins, people come and go, taking right up to their sort of, the Copperody, I can never pronounce that, can I Copredi. Copredi, uh, uh, yes. Copredi. Copredi. Oh, he knows. Copredi. Copredi. Which was a sort of started off as them kind of getting back together again and then became a sort of a, a, a sort of permanent event. And also he's involved with the Albion band and other stuff. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a wide-ranging stuff, but certainly on that, that sort of first period of the Fairport, it's pretty fascinating. It's good stuff. I mean, they became a kind of institution that they still are an institution. And that festival, you know, obviously until the pandemic was an, was an annual kind of institution. And, and fair, fair, it's almost, almost transcended the individual members. It's become this, this brand. It's interesting you say that because um, Ashley Hutchings, who left really quite early, I think 1969, yeah. Ashley Hutchings left, but he never really left. He was always still associated with them and would sort of drift in and out of their sort of orbit. So basically it's, it's Nickel and Peg and various other people at various different points in time. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, I only ever saw them once, I think, at the Roundhouse. Uh, would have been about 74 or 5. And all I really remember is, like, Dave Swarbrick's electric violin playing. And, it, you know, to me now, in hindsight, you know, the, the two most extraordinary members had, had gone by then, yeah. Sandy Denny and Richard Thompson, who were both just brilliant in their own ways. Yeah. I mean, we haven't really got time to talk about Sandy Denny, but she she somehow managed to make old songs like Tam Lin and Matty Groves. She, she made them sound like contemporary and, and emotionally contemporary in a way that very few other folk or even folk rock singers of that period did. She was soulful. She was, she soulful, was soulful, Mark, exactly. Yeah. I mean, did you, did you ever see 
Sandy Denny performed Chris. Once or twice, yes. Yeah. Right. And she won the Melody Maker uh, Award for Best Singer. So that was good, yeah. But she I didn't did. really know her that well. I know that she was mm. quite a, a vigorous personality. But like you, Barney, I didn't really see them that often now enough to form a proper opinion. No, I mean, I never saw her play and didn't know much about Sandy Denner until actually sort of years later when I think Joe Boyd put out this box set on Hannibal. And I was sent this box, so who, who knows where the time goes, which, of course, one of the most famous Fairport songs that she wrote, an exquisite yeah. song. I mean, song. just what a songwriter she was. My God, I think, I think her solo work is phenomenal. And I just fell in love with this box set, and I've just been a, a, a worshipper of, of Sandy Denny ever since. Right. And I, the way she, the end of her life was so, so very sad, I think. How we segue from Sandy Denny to DMX, but we're going to have to try it. Did you ever sample <laughs> the Sandy Denny record? The classic no. RBP segue. Uh, segue that doesn't work. In this instance, it really doesn't work because I don't know how you get to DMX from Fairport Convention. Did Fairport Convention ever have a synth phase where they used the Oberheim DMX from which it's <laughs> really grasping its I, d- I yes. doubt. Let's just I doubt say that. yes. I doubt that very much. <laughs> we are going to note the passing of DMX, who is sort of one of, one of the most sort of high profile rappers of the last you know 20 years i'm not an authority on dmx i just remember when he came out and he was this is quite sort of heavy presence in hip-hop i mean does anyone else have anything more sort of cogent to say about dmx not me no i'm, I'm not looking oh. to you i'm not looking to you chris um, no, although had you been <laughs> Yeah, or ha- had you been 30 years younger, you might have had egg and chips with DMX mm. <laughs> at, the, at the Golden Egg on Fleet Street. I don't know. I'm wasting <laughs> a progressive hip hop. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Wait for the moment you could co- coin that phrase. Yes. I mean, Jasper, do, do, do you know much about DMX? I mean, I've listened to him. I can't say, I don't know whether he's a great rapper or just this sort of controversial figure. Well, I think that. He's certainly a sort of strong character in that whole a vigorous scene, personality. Right? I mean, yeah, <laughs> a vigorous personality. No, I mean, I can't say that it's my favourite sound in terms of hip-hop, in terms of rapping, but he definitely has... There's something energetic, powerful about how he raps. I mean, X Can Give It To You is pretty undeniably visceral. I like that track. There are some other tracks because I like. I haven't really explored his back catalogue that much. I think one of the things about him is that he was kind of constantly feuding with someone or other and and had various problems with substances. And I think that he struggled as a result of where he came from, Yonkers, New York, spending time in boys' homes and juvenile institutions. And I think what sort of sums it up in a way is there's a story about how he was introduced to music by an older rapper who at the same time as encouraging him to rap gave him a blunt laced with crack cocaine. And that 
you know, set him off on this path of drugs. And I think that sort of in a way sums it up where it's every good thing was kind of laced with a bad thing that caused him to struggle with with things. But I mean, he was undeniably massively successful. I mean, he had like five chart mm. albums, multi-platinum records and was, you know, in films. It's sad that he's died at such a young age and is another casualty of the circumstances from which a lot of rappers come and the way that they're then made to be by the state of, yeah. of I mean to die of a heart Americans. attack at 50 yeah is suggests yeah 50 years old I mean we're fishing a couple of pieces yeah, that, that's cocaine isn't it I think it might, might be coke it might be coke might be crack we're featuring a couple of pieces, one by Eric Weisbud from The Village Voice from 2000. And there's actually a great quote in here about his, just his kind of rapping style. He says, you've got to create your own melody within yourself and in your head and still make it sound like a song. It's that rhythm in the voice. Knowing you can't rhyme like you think there's a beat in your head, you've got to rhyme like you're just talking that shit and make people understand it. It's better to rhyme calm than rhyme like you've got a beat in the head which I think is a quite eloquent kind of description of of his art. I mean, I, I listened a little bit before the podcast to It's Dark and Hell is Hot, which was the, time, the name of his first album. <laughs> In case there was any, any sort of confusion as to where he was coming from, It's mm. Dark and Hell is Hot. The other piece is a great Simon Reynolds piece, actually, from the same year, the New York Times, which is about the Rough Riders label and kind of stable of artists. The phenomenon that Simon reports on, I mean, the piece is called Family Values in the Rap Business. And he's sort of looking at how labels like Rough Riders and Cash Money present themselves as, as almost like families, almost like, well, he mentions the mafia at one point in it, that idea of almost like mafia families and Rockefeller and others followed in that way. But it's a good piece. And it mentions DMX, who's the biggest star in the Rough Riders stable at that point. So that's our way of saying goodbye to DMX. I think it is worth mentioning as well that he did stay true to, he was making music for his hood, basically, right? And he did stick with that. And it wasn't, even though it was aggressive gangster rap, it didn't always fall prey to the cliches of that style i think simon reynolds mentioned that in his piece yes and it's and so it's not really for us and i think that that's important to recognize and some of it is pretty great music you know pretty yeah. powerful music yeah fantastic well thank you and thanks for your comments on dmx chris too and progressive hip-hop and, <laughs> and vigorous personalities um, <laughs> i was going to point out i was just going to say that cream's first single was called rapping favor that's true. Oh, that's a connection. That's a connection. <laughs> yeah. Okay, they started so we, rap. Yeah. So we couldn't establish a connection between Fairport Convention and DMX, but we could establish a connection between between Cream and hip hop. Fantastic. It's what you hear it. Listen. It's what you hear it. Listen. It's what you hear it. Listen. X go give it to you. Fuck way for you to get it on your own. X go deliver to you. Knock, knock. Open up the door to spread. With the non-stop Mark is now going to talk us through some of the pieces that really caused his eye over the last fortnight. And Chris, just jump in if prompted to do so by any memories. Okay, first piece is, uh, a fortnight ago, Alan Smith, the enemy, interviewed Sam Moore of Sam and Dave. And uh, Sam says, there are personal differences between us, but the public isn't interested in personal differences. And we overlook these things because we value our act. The pressure of life is pretty high with us. 
so I suppose it's not surprising. Each one has to let off a little steam. Now, actually, they despise one another. And I think about the year before, the 68, maybe 67, is Dave Prater had in a dis- domestic uh, dispute shot and wounded his wife, at which point Sam simply stopped ah. talking to him anymore. So they worked together for two or three years without exchanging a single word with one another. So that's a, him acknowledging the differences, but whilst being sort of diplomatic. 1970, New York Times, Mike Johns gets to see Grand Funk Railroad play the Fillmore East. He says, it looks so much like a TV satire on a rock band, all noise and shaking, the drummer pounding a simple one-two solo with great pretension, or fans in the first ten rows jump into the air, wildly waving their arms. Like riots and air pollution, they're a phenomenon, though not one to bring into sensitive company. His mo- <laughs> Leaping forward by some years, John Savage interviewing Boy George in 1987. This is after Boy George had had a series of well, basically heroin addiction and all kinds of stuff. And he's not in a great place. And he says, there are days that I get up and think I'm never going to be normal. That I'm never going to have a normal day again. It's a really, it's very interesting. He's absolutely a low spot. From this week going in, Roger St. Pierre interviewing Gloria Gaynor for The Enemy in 75. She says, I'm Miss Gaynor, not Ms. Gaynor. I'm too busy trying to hook myself a man to be into women's lib. <laughs> that's that's uh, what it is. Thanks, Gloria. She Useful will survive. Quote. She will survive. <laughs> <laughs> Julie Panabianco in Boston Rock in June 81, reporting on the clashes series of shows at Bonds in New York, in Times Square, which has become sort of quite famous as part of the Clash mythology. It was that they had people like Grandmaster Flash on the same bill being booed by the punk rock fans. And Bonds, the promoters, had wildly oversold the show. So it was chaos. It's well worth reading this piece because she was there and it's a good look at it. George Clinton to Don Waller, LA Weekly 83. If you're getting fucked up on coke, you've got a lot of money. The worst thing it'll do is break you. But at least you'll be in a space where you can go back to work, chuckles. But if you fuck around with heroin or alcohol, when you look up, you ain't got nowhere to go. You're fucked up. You're at the bottom then. Well, of course, this is the time when George Clinton was spending most of his time with Sly Stone freebasing cocaine. So his justification for using coke is Mm. of that nature. Tenuous. Lastly, Caitlin Moran interviewing Britney Spears for the Times. Britney had damaged her knee. She says, God has led me everywhere. And with my leg, I think it was him giving me a sign that I needed a break. I thank him for it. So that's my lot. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jasper, Bonnie. Okay, just briefly, I'm going to mention three pieces. We talked about Jack Nietzsche last week, and I added a piece by Ian Penman for The Wire on Nietzsche from 2000, which is, it's just a great Penman piece about, you know, one of those kind of maverick artists that Penman worships. What's interesting is he starts off, he actually uh, was in Melbourne, Australia, when Nietzsche was guest of honor at the city's annual Cinesonic event. So he attended this kind of panel discussion with Nietzsche there. Well, it's just fascinating to me that Ian, Ian actually sort of witnessed Jack being being interviewed on stage. And he writes about, he writes a lot about the extraordinary soundtracks that Nietzsche mm-hmm. put together, obviously performance, which we didn't really get into the other day, but performance and the hot spot yeah. and, and several other really, really great soundtracks. So, 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 so that's, that's a great Penman piece. A piece that might interest you, Chris, and I'd be 
keen to know your memories of this man. There's a piece Alan Clayson wrote in 2004, unpublished piece that he sent to us about Mickey Most. And Mickey is an interesting guy in terms of the 60s going into the 70s, going from kind of pop into sort of rock and hard rock and, and heavy music, that sort of transition from like hi-ho silver lining to whole lot of love. Did you ever interview Mickey? Did you, were you around Mickey? You must have known him. Yes, I did, fortunately. I, I met him when he first came to and Well, in the early 60s, I interviewed him. When he was a rising sort of young, we thought he was a millionaire at that point. He probably was. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he's slightly, when I first met him, he was a little bit suspicious because he hadn't been given a great time in the music press, particularly. But when I really had a good chat with him, so I did a book on Peter Grant, and I interviewed him for that book. Yes. Not long before Mickey passed away, and he was very forthcoming, chatty, full of great stories, and uh, helped me a lot with the, the uh, insight into the relationship with Peter Grant and how they got together and started work, because um, they were into wrestling, which I always thought was quite funny. They were big wrestling fans. Did you know <laughs> that? <laughs> I'm not even sure that Peter hadn't almost been a kind of wrestler at one point, because he was, he was a big fella, as, as I don't need to tell you. He's certainly been a, a sort of bouncer, hadn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did do wrestling. That's where he used this technique for batting people with his stomach if they got in the way. So, like backstage at Led Zeppelin concerts, if you found anybody bootlegging and recording the yes. gig, you'd go up to them and hit them with his stomach, which I thought was an interesting technique. <laughs> but Mickey Mouse was great, actually. It was really helpful to me. And, uh, they also told me the stories about when they went to uh, plug records at uh, the pirate radio ships. And they, they hired a boat and tried to sail out to one of the pirate ships in a storm in the North Sea. And when they got to the boat, they couldn't obviously jump across the boat. So they threw all the records up that they wanted plugging. And they all landed in the sea. Not one of them landed on the ship. <laughs> Way to promote. That's hilarious. That's yeah. hilarious. Well, a very canny character, Mickey Most. Obviously, started the Rack label, Rack Studios. I mean, had a yeah, he he was certainly a multi multi millionaire by the time he died, was he not? Yeah. And the last piece I'm going to mention is a, actually a really sad piece about Amy Winehouse by um, Paul Elliott for Mojo, and he look he, he basically goes to Birmingham to see her perform in 2008 and she is so fucked up that she's like booed off the stage and he doesn't get the interview and he just he's right there in the eye of that storm and writes about Blake feel the civil and and that just just hideous kind of meltdown that was going on and I hadn't read this piece at the time and if one's a fan of Amy Winehouse it's uh it's pretty kind of close to the knuckle great piece he had interviewed Mm. her back in earlier in the decade in Brighton when she played one of her earliest shows in Brighton. So he's got that kind of perspective on how amazing she was before she started doing hard drugs. So those are three that I'd pull out and I'll now um, defer to Jasper. A few things to mention, first of which is an amusing little review of Joe, mononymous <laughs> R&B singer, by Dorian Linsky in the Guardian 2001 album Better Days. 
This is everyman R&B, a little like Craig David minus the pop pizzazz, a little like D'Angelo without the sexual heat, but mostly thuddingly dull. Even the guest stars succumb <laughs> to Joe's tractor beam of tedium. I found the phrase <laughs> tractor beam of tedium pretty, pretty great. Next is God Save the Toddlers by Dave Simpson in The Guardian, 2002. And it's about someone who decided that what the world really needed was an album of punk rock for babies called, aptly enough, Punk Rock Baby. And it's instrumental lullaby versions of like Pretty Vacant, White Riot and all this stuff. And it's just a bizarre idea but um it's an interview with partly an interview with, with the guy who created it ian walker and he says the thought of my child not liking the clash or listening to hearsay and westlife fills me with horror oh, <laughs> it's just Jeez. a very funny i mean it's, it's bizarre <laughs> but i mean it is funny because a lot of children's music really is terrible so i kind of i get it on, on that on that front it can be it can be awful my parents were extremely relieved when at the age of like four or five i decided that what i really wanted from the cd shop that they were in was uh the beatles yellow submarine because i liked the cover so that was that was when i stopped <laughs> having to have children's music well, when my son was born in 1977 and the virgin records kindly sent him a teddy bear and it had a t-shirt on and it was a sex pistols t-shirt with a great big safety pin through his nose so i thought that's an example of then vivian goldman writing about her experience of writing the cherche la femme musical with kid creole which we talked about a couple of weeks ago yeah. and it's a really interesting article she kind of just goes through how that came to be and how it was quite a long drawn out process and there's an interesting passage in it there's a misconception that famous womanizers and august liked his images at lothario are necessarily sexist not so they may not want to be sexually faithful but secure in their masculinity they also enjoy working with women and are arguably less threatened by female dynamism than some marital conformists yeah, <laughs> which i thought was an interesting passage actually and it's a great piece well worth reading then a single review of a kind of like from, taken from a list of like the top 10 singles of the year or whatever by Pitt Williams in the line of best fit of Charlie XCX's Boys, which is just a fabulous pop record, you know, just bubblegum pop at its absolute finest with a, just a, an excellent video game coin sample. And Pitt writes really nicely about that. I'm sorry that I missed your party. I wish I had a better excuse like... I had to trash the hotel lobby But I was busy thinking about boys And then lastly, I want to mention a long 10,000-word essay on autotune, how autotune revolutionized the sound of popular music by Simon Reynolds in Pitchfork. And it's really a fascinating read because autotune has become so ingrained in music across the board. I mean, the piece talks about the original autotune use, which, which is Scher's Believe, then goes right through to like, current day trap with Migos and just a, a really good history of auto-tune and of, of similar effects like that goes into the technology, goes into the, the backlash against it and all that stuff. Just, it's, it's fascinating. Does he express an opinion on auto-tune? No, you do that, Mark. Well, no, I, 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 I want to know if, he, if, he, if, if, if Reynolds expressed an opinion. He doesn't say it's rubbish or it's great. He's kind of... 
<laughs> Simon's far, yeah. never that. Simon's never that simplistic, is he? Really, he's not going to come out pro or contra. no. I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't write ten thousand words on it, and and kind of it's a historic, it's a, an analytical right. article. I, I would yeah. say. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair, fair enough. I was just wondering if he did. Yeah, it's about kind of how prevalent it became and even though it always seemed like it might just be a fad and stuff sure. and, and it is fascinating true. It's and true. it's just it's just Didn't a... the uh, loving spoonful use that as well can they use auto-tune or did they the loving spoonful yeah, i don't I think, think so i had an instrument that looked like a string instrument no no you're talking about the auto harp oh, oh, yes yes <laughs> yes very Sorry, different, yeah. very different. Simon hasn't written a 10,000-word article on the auto-harp. I, yet. I did wonder, yeah. Yet. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, very strange. good. It concludes, it makes absolute sense that auto-tune singing, bodily breaths transubstantiated into beyond human data, is how desire, heartbreak, and the rest of the emotions sound today. Digital soul for digital beings leading digital lives. Yeah, it's a great piece. It's it's just he's manages to remain academic about it. Actually, it is a kind of academic piece. Well, that would be Simon. I mean, I do think it's interesting that Auto Tune even strayed into the music of an act like Lamb Chop. You know, it 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 isn't just sort of share and pop and R and B. Lamb Chop actually, yeah, Kurt Wagner used Auto Tune on this Lamb Chop album in a way that was. I can't say I loved it, but it was interesting. It was an interesting experiment. There's also a grey area where people use autotune almost as a substitute. What's the, the, the great thing that Roger Troutman used? What was that bit of uh, kit? A vocoder. No, that wasn't a vocoder. Voice Actually, box. it was. Yeah, it was a talk box. Slightly yeah, different but, technology. But, but, but some, but yeah. People, yeah. some people are using uh, autotune in the way that people previously used the vocoder as a sort of yes. distorting device. As an instrument. In yeah, I don't yeah. like it as much as a vocoder. I think vocoders actually sound better to achieve that sort of effect. But it has, that is something that has occurred. Yeah, and I mean, if Simon makes the point that playing with the human voice has be- just become a crucial part of, of modern music, of, yes. you know, distorting it, speeding it up, slowing it down, you know, editing yeah, yeah. it, resequencing it, all of that stuff. And, and I think that, that auto-tune is similar because auto-tune is actually a brand name it's it's a specific yes. model of, of plug-in right you can there are melodyne and there are other things that do the same thing yeah, yeah. i just wondered how i missed this huge craze for auto hearts okay. <laughs> <laughs> progressive auto hearts yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we probably need to wrap up i mean just really to say that you know to sort of bring things full circle you you were at the melody maker till 1979 and you then went on and you, you even edited metal hammer for a while you've written think... a number of great books including hmm. a, a, a fab bu- a biography of vivian the great vivian stanshall called hmm. ginger geezer Oh, uh, you wrote that great Peter Grant book. What are you working on now? What's keeping you out of trouble, Chris? Because, you know, I know that's difficult. You know, you you were always getting in trouble, weren't you? Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, like Nick, you know, I was joking a little bit with Mark. You, you, you're sort of the anti-Nick Kent in a way, aren't mm. you? What? Yes. Uh, you yes, didn't go that, that route. No, no. But what's keeping you off the streets at the moment? Are you writing a book? Well, I've been asked to write my memoirs by my wife, right. actually. Yeah. <laughs> she's commissioned you, and is she, is she paying you? Yeah. Uh, no, that's the problem. No, I would like to do that. It's something I've been promising I'd do. But, uh, mm. I've been editing a biography of Phil Seaman, the jazz drummer. Oh, yeah. Uh, which, uh, which is a huge project. The author spent about five years working on it, longer, actually. 
Wow. And it's just nearing completion. They're hoping to publish it this year. Of course, that takes us full circle back to Ginger Baker. And because Phil Seaman was a huge influence on Ginger Baker, they were friends. I believe Ginger started using heroin with Phil Seaman, among other things. It's, yeah. it's a very yes, interesting. That's discussed in the book. Yeah. yeah. They actually, the author interviewed Ginger about that. So that's going to be revealed. Okay. All will be revealed. Yeah. So who and when, who's publishing that and when is when does that come out? Well, hopefully in the summer, in June or July, but it's going to be self-publishing. The author okay. is quite a canny guy, and he didn't like any of the offers he had from publishers, so he oh. thought he'd do it himself. So, oh, okay. But it is a huge... should be fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what else have I been doing? Uh, oh, I know. Bob Kerr's Woofie Band. <laughs> I don't know if you remember them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Are you now a member of Bob Kerr's Woofie Band? I, I, is that what you're going to I tell I did them? actually play with them, yeah. I played yeah. drums with them once, yeah. They were just a mainstay. They were always playing. Whenever you looked in the gig listings, they were always, yeah. for years, decades, they were playing oh, somewhere every week. That's right. Well, Bob has written his memoir, so I'm doing the introduction. Okay. Oh, great. Excellent. Great. Good, good, good. Well, look, I mean, I think it's time to to say goodbye to you and to our listeners to thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the equally amusing David Quantic. I don't know exactly what we'll be talking about with David, but it should be a laugh. Um, he's a very funny man. We are going to go out, are we not, Mr. Pringle, with the third and last clip from the Simon Nickel audio. Yes, it's basically kind of bringing us more or less up to date and the pleasures of the Copridi Festival. I can never get that that right. And having people like Robert Plant and others singing with Fairport. Yes, yes. And Roy Wood, Roy Wood. Yes, yes. Fairport's doing Blackberry Way with with, <laughs> with, with, with Roy Wood. Very funny. So, all right. Well, thanks again, Chris. Um, thanks, Chris. Pleasure, Chris. Yeah. See you soon. Cheers. Bye. Great to see you. Take care. Bye. Bye. How do you feel about people like Ian Anderson, Robert Plant, and Roy Wood coming to play with you? Is it fun? I love it, me. As long as it doesn't get out of hand. I mean, it has to be put in perspective. And I think last year at Crabbly, well, I know we did. We, We. we went too far in that direction. We had too many special guests. Um, this year we made up for it. We had very few. But it's um, the most enormous fun to uh, play songs like, you know, Misty Magic Help or Blackberry Way or things like that and actually be part of a unit which sounds better than the original. And he's got this enormous crowd of people just soaking it up and all smiling. That was Simon Nicholl in conversation with John Tobler in 1991, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Chris Welch. Find more of his writing on his RBP Writers page. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. Mm-hmm.